On Your Wavelength, a podcast on physics and publishing. We take you behind the scene of some of the most interesting work published in the Nature portfolio. We talk to the authors and to the editors and bring you the latest insights. Hello and welcome to the first episode of On Your Wavelength. I'm Ankita and I'm a senior editor at Nature Reviews Physics. Hi Ankita. Uh... Welcome to everyone. Welcome to everyone to this new podcast. I am Cristiano. I'm the Associate Editor at Nature Communications. So uh, this is the first, really first episode of our On Your Wavelength podcast. And why not just starting with a tweet? Uh, it's in, in Latin, Latin language. It's like it says per aspera ad astra, which, which literally means um, through hardship, to the star. And who is tweeting in Latin? I, I, I don't know, just someone who f- from the past or Elon Musk. I actually don't know why he's, he's actually posting this kind of stuff because few stuff happened lately. He actually bought uh, a Twitter. So just he has his new tie just to play around. But not only that. His company, SpaceX, that brings some people to the space, that brings some astronauts to the space, the first uh, NASA and SpaceX mission that will bring some astronauts to the state, to, to the space. So, I don't know, what do you think about all these private space missions? Uh, here we're touching like a, a, a really difficult topics, in my opinion, because of course, like, uh, I'm not super keen on, uh, on, on privatization. In this kind of sectors, we are experiencing really uh, high pace environment and really fast progresses that happens every day. KK, can you believe that just SpaceX with Elon Musk recently, uh, uh, it was last year, that launched a 35-story building in a form of a rocket, of course in the sky and let it land safely after a free falling of 30 seconds. That's, that's insane. That's something like it would have never happened if it was, if it, if it, every company was public. No, that's true. That is, that is, that is a very impressive result, but I mean, I agree with you that then we're progressing really fast, but sometimes maybe it's good to slow down a little bit because you know, there's lots of complex ethical questions about going into space as well. And given that the private sort of space race, um, I suppose we could call it, is going so fast means that I think, you know, like proper regulations and ethical considerations like just haven't been taken into account. I think there is room maybe to slow down a little bit and take our time with these, you know, quite big steps that we're taking. Yeah, 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 true. Just th- this, this is the other... This is the other face of the coin, but just it's not that simple. Now NASA is not like just reducing their activity from 2010. And then now they are clearly working together with joint ventures with private sectors because where the money is. In this way, just they can actually uh, allow astronauts to go to the uh, International Space Station, the ISX. Uh, just this month, we had the SpaceX mission that brought uh, uh, four astronauts on the ISS. And the this ISS mission, called Axiom-1, 
uh, with the Axiom One flights uh, was the first ever private mission to the station under NASA new policy. So just is something like huge. It opens like a new area of studies, also science, and we are really interested in this kind of in this kind of aspect also. Yes, that's true. And I suppose the ISS as we know it is only going to be around for a few more years and then we'll have sort of the next generation space stations. And I think NASA is going to start working even more closely with private companies to design those. But I do wonder, you know, how sort of the function and the priorities of these new next generation space stations are just going to change with privatization. So obviously there's a lot of great fundamental science that goes on at the ISS now, but for example, like, do you think Elon Musk would care about the alpha magnetic spectrometer on the ISS that's looking for antimatter particles and cosmic rays? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> I think I think if it's run with fossil fuels, he's not interested. Only if it's run with uh, with electricity and then just see if we can if we can sell some some electric motors. <laughs> so uh, I think who knows actually, uh, but here on our podcast on are you on your wavelength. We are really interested in, in antimatter, but not that far away from us. Let, let's come closer to the Earth, down, uh, just down the surface of the Earth on the Large Hadron Collider, which is creating antimatter particles and finding some unexpected new results. Yes, so our story today is uh, actually about our paper on the spectroscopy of antimatter. It was published in Nature on the 15th of March volume 603 page 411 for those who want the reference and the title is high resolution laser resonances of antiprotonic helium in superfluid helium-4 by anna soter and colleagues interesting tell us more so the story is that the team were investigating antiprotonic helium which is basically a helium atom where one of the electrons is replaced by an antiproton and they put this atom into this liquid helium bath, like made out of just completely normal, like matter helium. And they shone a laser onto it to look at the spectral lines. So normally what happens if you cool a system down like this is that the spectral lines start to get broader as it gets colder because the surrounding helium bath gets more dense and the electron orbitals effectively start getting smudged. And so it's always been an experimental challenge to get good, clear spectroscopic data in such a system when it's been cooled down. But surprisingly, the results in this paper actually show the opposite. And what they found is that the spectral lines of this antiprotonic helium actually got sharper as it got colder. Whoa, that's, that's, that's kind of strange. And do you know why? Um, no, actually, I think it's still a mystery. I don't think the paper you know, has a story of why, but let's talk to the authors to find out more. I'm joined here by Masaki Hori from the Max Planck Institute of Quantum Optics in Germany, who's the corresponding author of this paper, and Federico Levy, editor at Nature, who handled the paper. So thank you both for joining me today. And can I ask you to say a few words about yourselves? Uh, my name is uh, Masaki Hori. Uh, I work at the Max Planck Institute for Quantum Optics. This is a laboratory which does uh, mostly uh, quantum uh, information, uh, 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 atomic physics, not necessarily related to accelerators in Munich. Uh, 
I came to Europe in the year 2000 and then moved to Germany in 2008. Yes, hi. Thanks for having me, Akita, first of all. I'm Federico Levi. I'm a senior editor at Nature, and I'm responsible for handling research submissions, research papers in fundamental physics. So this goes from quantum physics to atomic physics, nuclear physics, particle physics. Um, I have been an editor since 2014 at Nature Physics and Nature Communications before moving to Nature in 2019. So, uh, Masaki, tell us about this paper. A very brief explanation is that we have uh, produced or synthesized an exotic kind of helium atom that contains a particle of antimatter called an antiproton. This is the antimatter counterpart of the proton. And this we have done for many years at CERN, but this time this half-matter, half-antimatter hybrid atom was immersed in a or if you want to say it, submerged into liquid helium. So helium is a gas at room temperature, but it turns into a transparent liquid at minus 269 degrees Celsius. We then fired laser beams at this hybrid atom in the liquid to measure how the atom reacts to light and found that an unexpected effect that the atom's spectral lines were sharper or narrower than many other normal matter atoms that were like, likewise dissolved in a liquid helium. So I think maybe a good place to start is the idea of laser spectroscopy. Um, so you're shining light onto the atoms and I guess exciting the electrons and seeing the light that's emitted. But can you tell us a bit more about why you do this? Our collaboration normally studies these antiprotonic helium atoms to precisely determine the ratio between the mass of the antiproton and the mass of the electron. So with our lasers, when we shine our laser to our atoms, we are in fact exciting not the electron, but the antiproton. We can change the orbit of the antiproton while keeping the electron's orbit intact. We normally do this to test the fundamental symmetries of the standard model of particle physics. By symmetries, I mean that if you transform something, it looks the same. So the standard model has a very interesting feature that phenomena appear to remain unchanged when they are hypothetically uh, transformed in certain ways. What we wanted to do is to test this hypothesis and this is why we started these experiments many years ago. But in the process of doing this, we found this particular effect, which we did not plan to find. So normally, would you expect the spectral lines to get broader as you go down in temperature? In the 1980s, they developed techniques to implant various normal atoms into superfluid helium. As you know, liquid is the coldest liquid. It's the most optically transparent liquid. And as you know, helium doesn't make chemical compounds. So it's chemically inert. You can hope that it would be an ideal host material and that the distortions of the atomic spectral lines would be small compared to other liquids like water. So this is why we tried to do this and people tried this and quickly found that at least for the most intense spectral lines in many 
atoms like alkaline, alkaline earth, lanthanide atoms, they are still typically broadened by a factor of more than a million. But there's another point that in particle physics, we necessarily have to produce all these exotic particles in high energy collisions. A lot of particles are really exciting, interesting, but their lifetime is nanoseconds or shorter. And then you absolutely don't have the time to decelerate them in a decelerator. So the only thing you can conceivably do is to decelerate them very rapidly by trying to put them into a very dense target, for example, liquid helium. And therefore, you see that there is an imperative to try to do spectroscopy in some kind of dense material. And this is what motivated this research in the very beginning, knowing, of course, that with normal atoms, we see these broad lines. So, of course, we started with very dilute gas. Then we saw very sharp spectral lines of this antiprotonic helium atom. We increased the pressure. Slowly, the resonance is broadened and broadened, and it became less and less distinct. And we were very much afraid that when we go to something as dense as liquid, the signal would not be resolvable anymore. But unexpectedly, when the uh, liquid, uh, when the gas turned into liquid, we saw that the resonance lines went the other direction. It became narrow. And when we reduced the temperature of the liquid, we found that it became more and more narrow. And when the liquid turned into the superfluid phase, it became extremely sharp and narrow. And this was a kind of unexpected laboratory curiosity, but it means that we are now able to probably to use this technique to study other kinds of atoms that have a negative particle inside. So what was your reaction when you suddenly saw the spectral lines that were starting to broaden as expected start to get sharper again? Did you think there was some kind of experimental error or did you trust your results? No, we, uh, this is an error. Uh, we have to kill the signal. This is what you must think. So Federico, when this paper landed on your desk, were you skeptical about the result? I actually wasn't, um, to be honest, in the sense that as an editor, you tend to, you tend to believe what your authors are saying, right? Um, and, uh, taking it at face value, you know, this was actually really interesting. It doesn't sound, it doesn't happen very often to receive a paper that actually observes something unexpected, you know. There is a tendency to call many things unexpected when they are not very unexpected in a sense. But I would say that in this case, the, the use of the word unexpected was, was appropriate. And I thought that that was actually quite, quite, quite exciting in a way. And then of course, you know, you need to have a reasonable degree of professional skepticism in waiting for judgment until you hear from referees. Clearly, they are the ones that ultimately will decide whether um, the paper seems robust. But, you know, no, actually, it was, it was great to read about it. Um, it was really exciting. So what did the referees make of the paper? Well, I thought that they shared the excitement, actually. You know, once they overcame their own skeptical, uh, you know, physicist slash researcher attitude, as, as Mazaki was saying, I thought that they were also all quite intrigued, 
definitely, you know, they commended the originality of the finding. And uh, um, I mean, it wouldn't be referees if they didn't have some criticisms, of course. That's that's their job at the end of the day. But I thought that all of them, in varying degree, were actually quite persuaded that this was very interesting and unexpected and stimulating finding. So, Misaki, this um, result, completely unexpected. And I guess there was no sort of theoretical framework that would explain it so far. So how did you go about trying to explain and understand this result? I have to be honest. I put it on the back burner because I realized that this is exactly the type of thing where you can fall into a black hole and not find uh, the, the answer. But sometimes science, uh, you cannot explain it, but it is useful. So it was useful for us because it gave us the courage to try to do a laser spectroscopy of another type of atom that now contains a pion. This particle can only survive in stationary state with an average lifetime of 26 nanoseconds. However, if you could stop it in liquid helium or superfluid helium, you can uh, produce the atoms before the pion uh, decays. And the question was, if I now try to excite the pion with a laser in the same way I have excited the antiproton with a laser, would the fact that the atom is again embedded in superfluid or liquid helium completely make the signal disappear? And this was very crucial. So this signal made us think that with the pionic helium case, it should be possible from the superfluid point of view. So we could then go with more confidence to the pionic helium case, and therefore we were able to see the resonance signal, which we also published in your uh, magazine. The pionic helium result confirmed, if you want, the antiprotonic helium result, because if the antiprotonic helium result were bogus, uh, the pionic helium would not even be uh, observable. So the pionic paper that you've mentioned um, is from a couple of years ago, right? So that came out first. That came out first because that is easier to defend because there is a new result uh, that this atom is produced. And we were so afraid that in superfluid, this atom <laughs> cannot be uh, seen because of the superfluid effect. And uh, no one else except us were, were afraid of that effect. So uh, in some sense, they took it for granted that relatively sharp spectral lines are observable in superfluid helium. And this made at least me more confident that the antiprotonic helium result, which is even more narrow than the pionic helium, okay? Pionic helium is 100 gigahertz. Antiprotonic helium is less than a gigahertz, so it's more unbelievable if you want, but it seemed to me that then people are more accepting of this result, so I don't need to sort of be so scared. So you are right that the sequence of papers was inverted. The antiprotonic work, we don't have a theoretical explanation, and this makes it much more difficult to write. If I can comment on uh, on the on the fact that uh, that the paper came in without a theoretical explanation, personally, I thought that that was actually a very good sign, to be honest, because not many people 
usually would write a paper essentially saying, we don't really know what's happening here, but we're seeing this, right? Um, and in that sense, you know, given that experimentally the paper was, you know, quite complete in a way, you know, the, the data was quite robust and there were a number of checks to ensure that the signal was effectively there. You know, going back to the question you were asking me before, Ankita, in terms of like, you know, whether I believed it or not, I think, I thought that actually quite the candid affirmation that, you know, there was not a clear, obvious theoretical explanation for this fact, if anything, made me even more, you know, happy that, that Mazaki and, and the collaboration decided to, to pre prepare this paper and send it to us, because it doesn't happen quite often to have papers that, have, that are just an observation, very careful one and sufficiently interesting on its own. So what do the theorists make of this result? Are they excited by it? Do they think that there's interesting new theory that can come from it? Or do you think it's going to be put in the back burner for the theorists and for now you're happy to use it um, as an experimental tool? I go out in a limb a little bit. Uh, the strength of our chemical physics theory is insufficient to predict what atoms will do in superfluid. So this model is very often to say that there is a bubble inside the superfluid that surrounds the atom. And when you excite it with an atom, it expands by 20%. Then there are vibrations, and these vibrations couple to the superfluid or the liquid environment. And this is how there is a damping effect, and therefore the resonance is broadened. Now then the question becomes, does that happen for all atoms? Does it happen for antiprotonic helium? My understanding is that there was not, there is no ready-made theory. You cannot adjust uh, the, the existing theories for a normal bubble to the antiproton helium case to predict that uh, this should happen prior to doing the experiment. One thing I wanted to say though, I mean, also in, in to comment on what Mazaki just, just discussed. One of the reasons why this is an interesting paper is that, of course, a lot of the antimatter research that Mazaki, his collaboration, and also other collaboration that work on antimatter do, is very much grounded in atomic physics. And clearly, you know, you can't just take an atomic physics technique off the shelf and apply it to antimatter. So there is a lot of technological and technical developments that need, you know, implementation, but some of them become quite bespoke to antimatter. So in a sense, the atomic physics community maybe follows with interest what happens in the world of antimatter to an extent. And I think that for the reasons that Mazaki just explained in terms of the fact that it's not clear how an atom that is made half of matter and half of antimatter interacts with a many body system such as superfluid helium, this is actually something that could potentially pique the interest of you know, an atomic physicist or a theorist that does atomic physics. So in a way, one of the reasons why we thought this was actually quite exciting was there is a real possibility that this draws attention from people that don't necessarily work on antimatter on a daily basis. Whereas perhaps you could argue that some of the experiments in antimatter tend to you know, speak to a some somewhat narrower audience made of people that study standard the standard model or beyond the standard model physics or antimatter. So um, I think that this is quite interesting and the fact that there is no theory and the physical chemistry of it is unclear, that's quite an interesting open question. That's what, one of the reasons why we were quite happy that we could publish this. What's been the response to the paper so far? Have you had feedback from readers who've had their interest piqued by the paper? At the moment, there is interest, 
In fact, I should say this paper has produced the most interest in terms of people either sending me questions and so forth among all the results that we have ever produced in our collaboration. If I can add something quickly, then, you know, we contacted four referees from very different areas of physics, and all four of them were actually quite interesting. You know, I would not downplay the fact that this is not something that anybody should give for granted. It is quite usual, and Ankita, I imagine you know it well, that referees often disagree with one another, and then, you know, that's when the editor needs to come in and, and sort it. But uh, in this case, I think that seeing you know, broad agreement in terms of the interest and potential of this result, the fact that four different referees covering such a spectrum in physics from laser spectroscopy of normal ions all the way to somebody that does antimatter physics, not in atomic physics, all of them saw this as quite interesting and exciting and quite stimulating, you know, that's, so, that's something that I wouldn't give for granted. So, you know, I hope that indeed what Mazaki said you know, realizes at least in part and that people, you know, read the paper and get in touch and try to think about what's happening. You know that neutrons, muons, these particles are used not only for particle physics, but as probes for condensed matter physics or for solid state physics. The utility is much wider. Antiprotons, because they are so sensitive to the strong interaction, they annihilate so easily that so far the interest has not really been uh, in the direction of condensed matter or uh, solid state physics. So maybe uh, uh, people who are much more intelligent than me will now be motivated to think of experiments which try to probe solid state or condensed matter or fields which, in which antiprotons have not been used previously. Yes, well, hopefully a lot of these other communities are going to be reading the paper and maybe listening to this podcast and they'll be inspired. 